one of the key backdrops to the contract campaign and the eventual strike was that it resonated so well with the overall feeling of working class Americans that uh, something had to be done, that people should uh, not have to be always working under such uh, stressful conditions. So it, it kind of hit a nerve, I think, that really resonated with the public. That is Rand Wilson. In 1997, Rand was in the war room, though his opponent didn't really know that a war was afoot. In the parcel and small package division of the Teamsters Union, Rand was strategizing with top leadership. He was drafting research pamphlets and other materials, figuring out, with the help of the workers themselves, how they would get 185,000 UPSers. That's roughly one in every 550 workers in the private sector that year. How they would get them prepared to strike if they needed to when their contract expires that summer. That August, they were prepared and they did strike. And in the end, they won. Hello, my name is Teddy Ostro. Welcome to The Upsurge, a podcast about UPS, the Teamsters, and the future of the American labor movement. What we seek to do in this podcast is unpack the unprecedented labor fight this year at United Parcel Service. In July, the contract of 350,000 UPS workers will expire. That is the largest private sector bargaining agreement in the United States. And there's a chance we will see them strike which would be one of the largest strikes in U.S. history. In this episode, we dive into actually the last national UPS strike, which happened in 1997. And like the potential strike this year at UPS, it's been called the strike of a generation. Part of that, of course, was the size of the strike and the financial damage it caused. 185,000 workers stopped working for 15 days. At the time, the U.S. had seen nothing like that for more than a decade, and it hasn't seen anything like that since. Now, mind you, deliveries weren't nearly as big as they are today, but they were pretty major by 1997. Millions of packages went undelivered, while hundreds of thousands more crushed the U.S. Postal Service that became the de facto alternative while workers withheld their labor. UPS was losing an estimated $40 million a day in business. And by the end of the strike, in 2022 dollars, they lost over a billion. People in the labor movement were really excited about the strike, especially because it was successful. There are few better people to talk about the 1997 strike than Rand Wilson, who was a communications coordinator of the UPS contract campaign at the time. With Rand, we explore the history of the strike, as well as some of its prehistory, as I said last episode, you can't understand the potential strike this year without understanding 1997. And you can't understand 1997 without understanding some of the history of the Teamsters Union. Rand and I spoke a lot about that, including the tensions between factions within the union. On one side, the corrupt old guard decried as business unionists for running the union like, well, a business. And on the other, reformers of the union, who ultimately were the leaders of the strike. Now, those tensions within the union haven't gone away, and they are still a driving force of what's going on at the Teamsters right now. We'll talk about that too. But before you hear from Rand, we wanted you to hear about the 1997 strike from the rank and file themselves. Last episode, we spoke to two UPSers from the Teamsters local 804 in New York. They had a lot more to say than what you heard, so we thought you'd like to hear a bit more from Antoine Andrews and Tony Rosario. Here's what they remember 
when they were young men hitting the picket line in 1997. One of the things that I remember, you know, Anthony and I, you know, we're young, were young, <laughs> young, young lads. And, you know, the only difference is that, you know, I know the viewers can't see me. I have a bald head. I had some hair on my head and Anthony's hair was so much lengthier than what it is now. But um, yeah, all I remember, I have a clear vision of being on that picket line. See them now because they're all gone. Walk a picket line. 185,000 drivers and package handlers hit the picket lines at and midnight. A bunch of the senior guys were just yelling and screaming as the trucks were, you know, leaving the building. These trucks were being driven by what we call scabs. Scabs are people that the company would suddenly hire who would not be experienced and as professional as we would be uh, doing the job. Yeah, that's what I remember. And I remember being told, you know, kid, you have to be out here every day until the strike is over. And this guy was so you know, muscular and his voice was very deep. And I said, you know what? I'll be here. I mean, I go back to that strike line and I... I, like Antoine, remember vividly being on that picket line. I remember the camaraderie. They picked up the gauntlet on behalf of all American workers and their families. And their struggle is now our struggle. You know, uh, barbecuing, the, the trucks would go by and honk their horns. Where me and Antoine grew up at Foster Avenue, I like to say that's where we grew up. <laughs> right across the street, there is a sanitation. The sanitation workers were great. As they came in and out, they'd always show us a lot of love. A couple of times, they dropped us off some water. I remember at the time, then president of our of our 804 was a man by the name of Howie Redmond. He gave me the bullhorn. And I remember I was yelling really loud a couple of Spanish profanities. I'm, I'm Puerto Rican, so... <laughs> I must have went in about uh, about six or seven minutes, if that. It may have been even shorter before the cops came over and threatened to arrest me and take it away. I do remember there was a lot of companies that were, you know, begging us to come back to work. At the time, also, the government wanted to get involved, and they, the, the president himself was, from what I understand, asking for them to come back to the table. And uh, the international president at the time, Ron Carey, who actually came out of local 804, had a very hard stance and told them, you want us to come back to the table? You are talking to the wrong people. What's their position? To move it more in the direction, expand even more part-time, low-wage, throwaway jobs. That's not what America wants. That's not what our community wants. And certainly, that's not what teams to families want. I, I mean, they thought they had us sunk. They thought within the first week, everybody was going to start running back to work they didn't realize the resolve that these workers had. I think it took 15 days in total before they bend the knee and they understood these workers are not playing. It's time to step up, buttercup, and give us what you're supposed to. to tell these corporations in this country, enough is enough. It's the MIBs. They call them MIBs. UPS men dressed in brown all over town Come to your door face to face lay the package down Deliver to you and me M.I.B. Uglier clothes you will not see You don't see them now cause they're all gone Walking picket lines cause the strike is on You just heard from Antoine Andrews and Tony Rosario And now my interview with Rand Wilson 
So, Rand, we met in Chicago at the Teamsters for a Democratic Union convention. That's the group TDU. We will likely get into what that is in this interview, but you were kind enough to let me in a workshop called Getting Strike Ready or something of that sort. Of course, that's for the potential strike in August of this year at UPS. And you talked a lot about 1997, but I, I want to run back the clock a little bit further than 1997. I want to go back to 1989. And this was really important uh, for the Teamsters that year. It sort of set the stage for what would happen eight years later. That was the year Teamsters members got the right to vote for their top leadership. Many unions don't have that or give that right today to their members. Can you tell listeners about that moment before and after why that was such a turning point in the union for its members and ultimately for this larger change? It's funny. Uh, I think last week was the 40th anniversary of the mafia gangland style murder of Alan Dorfman. He was had influence with the Teamster pension funds and he sold insurance to Teamster members and Chicago this afternoon, Alan Dorfman, a man with reported ties to organized crime and to the Teamsters Union for the past 30 years, was shot to death in what police are describing as a gangland-style execution. The universal opinion of Justice Department and other government sources contacted today was that Dorfman was murdered out of a fear that he would turn informer in an attempt to strike a deal with prosecutors. That murder, plus the testimony of Roy Williams, who was president, who was also uh, under indictment at the time, led to the union being put into receivership by the federal government. And the incumbent officers, you know, had a choice. They could all resign their offices and agree to new elections for a whole new regime, or they could face uh, indictments and prosecution. So they all chose to quit their jobs and move on with their lives vacate the union. And it offered this unique opportunity to elect new leaders. There'd been a, a reform movement that had begun early in the 70s that had been pushing for more democracy in the Teamsters and to clean up this kind of corruption that had uh, siphoned off members' pension funds and had led to the deteriorating contracts that were you know, negotiated in backroom deals without membership input. The Teamsters Union had literally become a piggy bank for mobsters. So the regime chose to leave and TDU, Teamsters for a Democratic Union, was very successful in intervening in the eventual settlement of this receivership to make sure that the union would institute one member, one vote elections for its top officers, which is not unique in the Teamsters, but it's it's not common in the labor movement. TDU was able to get the direct election of union officers, including the general president, secretary treasurer, and the trustees. And there were very strong supervisory oversight put into place of the democratic process so that members would actually have the ability to participate in a free and fair election. Honestly, in 1990, most Teamsters didn't believe it would ever happen. Even you know, after the consent decree, after the agreement was reached, I can remember talking to members and they were like, this isn't, we're not gonna vote for our officers. Are you kidding me? There'll never be an election. They're not gonna allow that. But um, there was, and the election was held in 1991, and there were three slates, and 
two of the slates were essentially slates of the old guard officialdom that had been working under the previous administrations. And they expected that one of them would win. But a third TDU-backed slate led by uh, the president of Local 804 out of New York, Rod Carey, uh, surprised everybody and in a three-way race was the uh, victor. Extraordinary changes this week in what has been run for so long like a one-party state. The International Brotherhood of Teamsters has its first president openly elected by the membership. It's goodbye to the mafia. It's goodbye to the concessionary contracts. It's goodbye to those who have lined their pockets and who have put the membership in last place. That really uh, was a shock to a lot of people. They just couldn't believe that an honest person like Ron Carey would be able to take over the reins of the union. So it's very exciting. It was unprecedented. Here, this organization had been mired in corruption for decades, you know, since the 50s, 40s. And now we had a, a leader that was, and an executive board that was committed to uh, cleaning up the corruption, corruption in the union and to, you know, really fulfilling the, the goals and aspirations of the members. So uh, Ron Carey's slogan in the first election slogan was put members first. And that was uh, a novel idea, you know, that the members were should have power in the union, should be able to determine their wages and working conditions through collective bargaining and uh, be able to democratically vote on their wages and working conditions. And uh, so Kerry gets into office and he was uh, really faced with a very, very uh, divided union and a union that still had a lot of corruption that needed to be cleaned up. Yeah, and I think some of this history might be a bit surprising to two types of listeners, listeners who are familiar with the labor movement and over the past uh, 40 years are sort of saw the depictions of unions and maybe believed them as these bureaucratic institutions, potentially corrupt institutions. Certainly there is the uh, notoriety of Jimmy Hoffa, who is the general president of the Teamsters for a long time and arguably uh, gained the union tons of power, but there was elements of corruption that ended up potentially getting him killed or disappeared. And then there's the other listener who's probably unfamiliar with unions and uh, especially in the past three years, we're hearing about the Amazon labor union, Starbucks, clearly worker-led efforts. You would think, wow, I, I had no idea that they had to work so hard. They had to fight so hard for something like even voting for their top officers. Now, just for a second, you talked about Ron Carey being the local 804 president of the Teamsters. Um, and before that, he was, of course, a worker, a, a package car delivery driver. Can we talk about what was going on at UPS from the 70s, the 80s, uh, and then when uh, Ron Carey takes the presidency in the early 90s? What was going on and why was this so significant to have a UPS leader at the helm of the Teamsters union? The company was founded in the early teens, I believe, in Seattle, Washington, and it was managed in a sort of militaristic regime, at least for the, the drivers. And they made a practice of actually hiring a lot of uh, veterans. And the early history of the company was quite paternalistic, but also very rigorous in its methods and, and making sure that people followed these very exact procedures. And it experienced, you know, real growth 
over the decades as uh, the, especially after World War II, when the sort of uh, robust, most robust economy was uh, occurring. And you had the advent of companies like Sears and Roebuck and department stores that people would shop and then have their packages delivered from the, from the store instead of carrying them home. Or you had a, a mail order catalog. It was kind of a precursor to Amazon. And eventually uh, UPS emerges as the dominant package car delivery company in the country. And so by the, by the 1970s, it's uh, employing you know, upwards of oh, probably 80 or 90,000 people delivering packages. And by the time we get to 1997, it was 185,000 people. And we look at it today, around 350,000 people. Exponential growth through not only the pandemic, but through the uh, online uh, shopping phenomenon that's totally transformed uh, retail in this country. Prior to the strike in the early 90s, the company had continued to experience record profits and had been on a fast track to continue to grow with uh, the desire by consumers to have uh, packages delivered to their homes. So that was sort of part of the backdrop to the growth of the company in the 90s. I think the other thing that's worth talking about is UPS begins to hire part-time employees. Forget what year in the 70s, but the union leaders at that time gave UPS carte blanche to hire part-time workers for their warehouses where the packages would be received, sorted, and loaded onto the trucks for delivery. And those had been full-time jobs in the warehouses, but now, or the sortation centers, but now would be increasingly staffed by lower paid part-time employees. And so that was part of a much larger backdrop of deteriorating working conditions for American workers that was introduced in the late 70s and and then increased throughout the 1980s, where you had the introduction of more and more part-time jobs, the casualization of work, where you had people who were subcontracted or were temporary employees, more precarious employment. You know, this, this allowed companies to make super profits, and it really dragged down wages and working conditions for uh, working Americans. But that was a, a phenomenon in the 80s. And uh, by the time we get to the 1990s, people are really feeling very exploited, very insecure, economically threatened by this increased precariousness of their jobs. I have a 15-month-old son at home, and I want a full-time job and full-time wages and a full-time pension so I can spend some time teaching my son my values. Uh, this strike is for him and for American families everywhere, and I am willing to sacrifice everything I have and as long as it takes to make sure that Americans know we cannot have a part-time America anymore. One of the key backdrops to the contract campaign and the eventual strike was that it resonated so well with the overall feeling of working class Americans that uh, something had to be done, that people should uh, not have to be always working under such uh, stressful conditions. So it, it kind of hit a nerve, I think, that really resonated with the public. Yeah. One thing that I might add just about some of the context of the, this moment was 
that obviously starting in the 80s, uh, unionism or unions were under attack by corporations and certainly encouraged by the Ronald Reagan administration and and thereafter, including Bill Clinton uh, and Bush Sr. So what we were looking at is actually a, a deterioration of Teamsters membership in some of the more traditional uh, sectors and freight um, in classic truck driving and UPS is growing. Yeah, really good, really good point, uh, Teddy. I forgot to mention the deregulation of trucking, which resulted in within just a few years of having hundreds of thousands of drivers on the road working for themselves as owner operators rather than working for a, uh, an established delivery company, all kinds of transportation sectors. That happened in, uh, I think, under Carter, which would have been in the 70s and led to uh, really a deterioration of wages and working conditions for truck drivers throughout the economy. It was a big part of the backdrop of, uh, of those contract negotiations for sure. Yep. Yeah, let's, let's hop back to 1997 for a second. Uh, you set the table really, really well for this moment and you started to talk about part-time work and the just precarious kinds of jobs that were beginning to become dominant across uh, the United States economy. Can you elaborate on some of those main issues? You talked about part-time work. And in fact, the tagline of the strike was part-time America won't work. What was going on? Why were UPSers so furious and ready to strike? The workforce at UPS is divided between the package car delivery drivers and the sorters and loaders, and then the inner city drivers who drive much larger trucks you know, between cities. We call them the feeder drivers. UPS, which had been given permission to have this lower paid part-time workforce in the warehouses, was increasingly taking full-time jobs and turning them into part-time jobs. And part-time workers would be working full-time hours, but getting part-time pay. So these were just tremendous abuses of workers and of the uh, union contract. There was a, a pent-up frustration about that. The part-time starting wage hadn't been increased for a decade. And it was just uh, a, a few cents more than the minimum wage. So, you know, there was a lot of part-time workers wanted full-time jobs. A lot of full-time workers were concerned that their work would be part-timed and that that they were really attacking the, the job security and and wages and benefits by uh, part-timing people's full-time jobs. We actually issued a, a research report that documented the changes that were occurring in the workforce and making the case that there were ample opportunities for the company to take two part-time jobs and make them a full-time job. And that you know was something that members really, I think, were concerned about. Another sticking point was pensions, right? What was going on there? Yeah, pension was a big issue. UPS wanted to take over the pension plan. Um, instead of having a jointly managed plan where the union and the company both have trustees that oversee the pension, UPS just wanted to take over the pension and manage it themselves. And there had been enough corruption with the pension funds where they had been a piggy bank for the mob and had been, you know, used to build casinos in Las Vegas and to, you know, land speculation that had enriched organized crime or Teamster officials, including uh, Jimmy Hoffa. You know, it wasn't a completely crazy idea. 
right, to, you know, get out of that kind of fund. And with the deterioration that had occurred in the trucking industry, UPS Teamsters were, in effect, subsidizing the increasing pension burden of other Teamsters who were in these deregulated industries where there were fewer and fewer payers, not enough new hires to pay for the pensions of retirees. So there were problems in the funds and UPS sought to exploit that. And despite the issues with the funds, pensions, of course, were and are incredibly precious to UPS workers and other Teamsters. Even by 1997, I'm sure pensions were on the decline. Yes, it was probably in the 1990s that you had the introduction of the 401k, right? That instead of a defined benefit plan, you would have these uh, defined contribution deals that go into a fund that you essentially self-manage called a 401k. And you're at the mercy of the stock market. Every individual is on there. You're on your own, you know, to uh, come to terms with like your savings to retire. It's It's been a complete disaster. And uh, the fact that it occurred so quickly and with such little resistance is a, is a untold story in America. And of course, every time the, you know, the market dips like it has in the last year or so, if you were about to retire right now, you'd be looking at 15 to 20% less in your IRA or your 401k than you had a year and a half ago. That wouldn't occur if you had a defined benefit pension. Yeah, the right to pensions is in a way just a right to retirement. And that's why it's so important now and then. So I want to, let's let's go to the strike itself. It was a 15-day strike by 185,000 UPS workers in the package division. That's enormous. So as you mentioned, there's over 150,000 more workers that could be on strike this year, potentially. I want to ask, how the heck you get that many people to cease working and not cross the picket line? You couldn't just expect all UPSers to walk off the job at the snap of Ron Carey's fingers. Striking is a scary thing. Some people may believe, and often correctly, that they could be fired. We saw what happened with the air traffic controllers when Ronald Reagan famously fired, I believe, over 10,000 of them, really destroying the union. Or, you know, they may lose on strike some much needed money. People don't understand that strike funds, you do often get less than what you would make on the job. So tell us tell us about what it took to get over 185,000 workers out there and how UPS over the years, what they were doing to try to prevent such an event. And just to say, you were in a pretty unique position to describe what was happening because you were a communications coordinator of the strike at this time. So you saw and were in ways really trying to prepare UPSers for this fight. The key to a successful strike is membership preparation, membership education on the issues, and then activities that build unity around the major issues and win public support for what the union is trying to achieve. So in the case of the 97 UPS strike, Kerry understood very well that you couldn't snap your fingers. He knew that he had to put a substantial investment into uniting the membership overcoming the local union officials and regional joint council officers' opposition to his his regime, their desire to make sure that he couldn't succeed. He knew that he had to have a, a campaign to overcome all of these obstacles and uh, overcome uh, the company's, uh, you know, scare tactics and uh, divide and conquer program. I, I was in the communications department, but really didn't have a background in communications. I'd been 
working as a union organizer in New England, but I was able to get a job in the communications department. I took it and was given that opportunity to help develop the contract campaign for Ron Carey, along with many other union staffers. What made the contract campaign at UPS in, in those years unique was just the scale of it. Methods and techniques that we did were hardly pathbreaking or novel, but doing it on that large of a scale was something that I, I don't think people had attempted uh, before, certainly not in the Teamsters Union. And U UPS is the largest private sector agreement in the country. It was then and it is now. You know, we embarked on a campaign to educate the members about the key issues, get members involved in understanding that they had to not only think about themselves as, say, a driver, uh, but they had to understand the issues that the feeder drivers were facing. They had to understand the, the issues that the loaders and sorters were facing. And we had to build unity between all of these different groups in this company that's uh, got you know, quite a few deep divisions, very fractured. The, the goal of the campaign was to, to unite those members around common issues you know, it was a year-long effort that we undertook to build support for winning a good contract. The goal of the contract campaign isn't, isn't necessarily to go on strike, but it is to show management that you have that capability, that you have that ability to withdraw your labor. And that's what gets their attention. That's what gives you the leverage you need to begin meaningful negotiations over pay and working conditions. Yeah, you guys had organizers, UPS organizers themselves, uh, at the building level, each person being responsible for member-to-member -member contact. Then you had organizers at the local level, uh, at the international level. The campaign was establishing member-to-member -member networks, making sure that people were educated with literature, which I believe you perhaps had a hand in drafting, such as the countdown to contract pamphlet, really just emphasizing the importance of organization, communication, action, uh, things of that sort. And also there was a number of rallies, I believe, that were escalating as time went on closer to the contract negotiations. And UPS was dumbfounded by uh, this kind of activity. They weren't used to it. Yeah, I mean, with, with a contract campaign, you want to crawl before you walk and you want to walk before you run. And you, you can't, as you said, you know, snap your fingers and expect people to walk out on strike. So you start out with doing small things, signing a petition, wearing a sticker or a pin, perhaps all coming into the job site at the uh, same time, you know, instead of just dribbling into work, you know, in the 10 or 15 minute window before the start time, just have everybody come in at seven o'clock sharp, right? And come in all at once, perhaps doing something in the outside of the facility in the parking lot. You could have a, a little rally about the issues, use that as a sort of teachable moment and learn from that experience, you know, how are we doing? Who's on board with the union? Who's still listening to the nonsense from management? Who's, who's ambivalent and perhaps potentially uh, not going to follow the, the campaign or, or be prepared to, to strike if necessary? So you're using these smaller activities to kind of gauge membership support. What is the level of support that we're getting? And are members really united in their desire to win, you know, improvements? 
you got to remember the company has a, an army of managers and supervisors out there battling against everything that the union is saying. It's really a struggle for hearts and minds. And ultimately, it was successful for the Teamsters, right? It was just a remarkable victory. By almost every measure, the tentative settlement appears to be a victory for the union. A lot of Teamsters members that I would see driving up just to get the news. Uh, a lot of them got the news. There were high fives. There were hugs. This is a great victory. This is a great victory for everyone. Because it is what this country needs. Decent jobs, a chance for the dream, a chance to purchase a home, to bring your children up properly, be able to send them to college. The UPSers mostly got everything they wanted. And can you describe, you know, what was won and why do you think it was so successful? And why this victory was so important, not just at UPS, but across the labor movement, at least for that year and the subsequent few years. We did win just about everything that were the major demands that members had. We made some progress on the company's ability to subcontract out work. We made progress on keeping the pension in a jointly managed plan and not allowing the company to take over the pension fund. We got the company to increase the start pay by a buck, I think, for uh, the warehouse workers or the, the loaders and sorters. And uh, of course, a, a good increase for the full-time drivers as well. And then we got the company to commit to creating more full-time jobs. I think the company responded initially with you know, something like, well, we'll make 500 jobs because they committed in 1994 to creating 500 jobs. But uh, we were looking for like 10,000 jobs, and they did agree to create 10,000 new full-time jobs in the settlement. The only concession that we made was really to move from a three-year agreement to a five-year agreement. That was something that a lot of people were upset about. You can see how that's ad advantageous to management. We still have the five-year agreements today, I, and I doubt very much it'll go away anytime soon. People have pointed out some similarities between 1997 and the situation today. I want to get to those in a second. But first, can you bring us up to the present? What happened in the years following the strike? Some people expected a renewal of the U.S. labor movement. Uh, it was incredibly influential. And at least for a year or so, there appeared to be a lot more organizing, especially within the Teamsters Union. They were reaching uh, non-unionized workplaces. And obviously that grander vision didn't really happen over the past 25 years. How is the UPS workforce nearing yet another national strike that's even larger? Well, the settlement was marred in many ways by charges against Ron Carey that he had engaged in what was called a contribution swap scheme for his 1996 re-election campaign. And it was eventually, he was completely exonerated but lower level staff people had engaged in a illegal funding scheme for his reelection. And that really sort of tainted the strike settlement, forcing Kerry out of office. It allowed those forces that were very upset about his administration, about his orientation to uh, the rank and file, to putting members first, to building a militant and democratic union, they took the union back over. And they had a glamorous uh, candidate named James Hoffa Jr., who with a, you know, a name like that was appealing to members that wanted to uh, sort of bring back the old days. I think the union drifted into complacency with the 
25 years of the Hoffa administration. And TDU valiantly continued to fight for union democracy, to fight for good contracts, and to wage campaigns for good agreements. But without the support of the national administration, it was increasingly hard. And we heard last episode a bit about what Hoffa was behind, including the 2018 contract, which introduced a two-tier system of package car drivers. That's the 22-4 position. It's basically a position doing the exact same work as some of their fellow UPSers, but making less money and less benefits. And fewer job protections. It's not just money. You're not eligible for a cap on the overtime, for example. How did those years lead to the burgeoning militancy that we're seeing today? You know, I think enough members had the experience of the 97 strike and over the years were disappointed in the subsequent agreements that they felt had let them down. 2018 contract was imposed with a majority of members saying they didn't want that contract and they wanted to send the union negotiators back to the table with management to get a better deal. Not necessarily to go on strike, but the tentative agreement you've reached isn't good enough. It is a vote to send people back and saying you can do better and we expect better. So the frustration I think had been building for years and years, 2018, which was five years ago, right, was the kind of the straw that really uh, pissed people off. And uh, there was a, a movement that emerged out of that for new leadership in the union and for taking a more militant approach to uh, winning a better contract. Yeah. Can we get into the differences and similarities you see between now and then? Clearly, a similarity is this reform movement, TDU, playing a pretty important role in channeling and organizing off of some of that resentment that was being experienced, you know, in in uh, the late 80s, early 90s, and now after 2018 and the election of Sean O'Brien, 2021, sort of mirrors in a way the election of Ron Carey. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities. And I think that, you know, you had a lot of frustration building up to the 97 strike and you had an administration that was raising expectations for what could be achieved um, if members came together and if they had honest and responsive leaders. And I think that's exactly what led to the election of Sean O'Brien, who has really picked up the mantle and unlike many previous Teamster leaders, has also laid out very clearly what we need to achieve new goals we need and that these are strike issues, right? That we've got to get rid of the two tier. We've got to raise part-time wages. We've got to create more full-time jobs. So he's not talking about the concessions that management wants. He's talking about what Teamsters can achieve by coming together. And, uh, you know, I think that's one of the, uh, what's inspiring is to hear an aspirational leader of the union talking about not what corporate America is going to get from us, but what we are going to get from corporate America and how we're going to do it and why we can achieve it, why we will be successful and what is it going to take to convince UPS and understanding that absent a strike threat, it's begging, not bargaining. And in some ways, he's far ahead of the situation that Ron Carey faced because the union is much more united at this time behind the O'Brien administration. He isn't facing the vehement opposition of so many local union leaders. 
now it's a few local unions maybe sort of sitting on their hands or maybe a little more pro-company or but I, I think the union is a lot more united and in a much better position uh, to go to the table with uh, UPS. It seems like a lot of the same issues are being fought for, right? Uh, you, we were just talking about for a while, part-timers making less pay. I think that's probably even more exacerbated 25 years on. We heard a lot about that last episode, wanting to make new full-time jobs. Pensions are on the table again. Um, and interestingly, some of the organizing techniques, right, there are still pamphlets flying around, but also there's a UPS Teamsters app. So <laughs> we're, we're using 21st century technology here, it seems. One difference I have heard is that UPS expects the strike now. That wasn't necessarily the case in 1997. I guess UPS had been dealing with a, a non-fighting union, a more complacent union, if you will, uh, this time it seems like they're staring down uh, what could happen, and clearly it, it would be much larger. Yeah, I I would say they were definitely caught flat-footed in '97. You know, they really expected that they could reach a deal with a substandard concessionary contract. They just thought they could get away with it again. They thought the union was was weaker, and they didn't think that the union officials would risk a strike. And they were wrong, and they were not well prepared. And they weren't prepared either for the kind of public support that the workers got when they went on strike. And I think that this management is probably a little more sophisticated, but let's hope that they understand that they're facing a united membership and a membership that's determined to get what, they're, what they deserve. They're not looking for pie in the sky demands here, but uh, for fairness, for dignity, for respect. And UPS has a long ways to go to meet those demands of the workers because they they do not treat people fairly. It's not always a safe place to work as it should be. It is an environment where they manage by harassment. They manage through constant haranguing and people are fed up with that. It's it's kind of old school, you know, that they that it's it's run the way it is so militaristically. I think that there's opportunity to educate management that members are prepared to strike, that there will be very, very few, if any, scabs, and that, that the demands that workers are making have the support of the public behind them. And this is a company that you know relies on uh, customers from the general public, right? They're very consumer sensitive, they're image sensitive. And do they really want to risk all of that by nickel and diming uh, their own employees? I hope not. For my last question, can you speak to how we should see the UPS fight within the larger moment of labor activity right now? Would a successful contract campaign at UPS be more impactful now on the labor movement than it was in 1997? What do you see are the stakes right now? Well, it's a much bigger agreement in the sense that it, it covers more employees. And we're in an environment where, you know, 70% of the country supports labor unions already coming into these negotiations. And we're also looking at the larger logistics industry as an opportunity for labor to grow, for opportunity for more workers to unite in unions. Um, and particularly, for example, at Amazon, uh, which is UPS's largest customer, but also its biggest competitor. And that's a company that Although there have been, you know, some small victories, uh, we have a long ways to go to build up union organization within Amazon's one million 
employees in the United States alone. I think the, the contract is going to be closely watched, not just by the package and delivery business or logistics companies, but by workers in general across the country and looking to see what are the benefits of being united in a union? How is it that when you have a voice on the job, your pay and benefits can be protected or improved? How is it that collective bargaining is the way to win job security, win dignified pensions and retirement? How is it that collective bargaining can lead to safer working conditions? When people see what can be achieved and how it's being achieved, you know, I think of it as a teachable moment. I think of it as an opportunity, not just for the Teamsters Union, but for the entire labor movement to demonstrate to working people, to the entire working class, the benefits of collective bargaining, the benefits of labor solidarity. Rand Wilson, thanks for joining me on The Upsurge. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the report that came out from the Bureau of Labor Statistics in January. It confirmed what most people already knew. The labor movement continued its decline last year. Union density dropped from 10.3% to 10.1% in 2022. Unions' prominence, in other words, is at a 100-year nadir. In the research for this episode, I was reading some of Rand's own writing on the 1997 strike. And in one of his essays, he quotes John Sweeney, former president of the AFL-CIO, which is the largest federation of unions in the United States. In 1997, Sweeney, who died in 2021 and was considered somewhat of a reformer himself in the AFL, said, quote, the UPS strike directly connected bargaining to organizing. You can make a million house calls, run a thousand television commercials, stage a hundred strawberry rallies, and still not come close to doing what the UPS strike did for organizing, end quote. Some thought the win would reverse the course of the labor movement, by then decades in decline. But as Rand explained, only a few years later, it became clear that workers would not ride the wave of the UPS strike. Now, that was after 185,000 UPSers struck. Why there's so much excitement right now? is that there are 350,000 UPSers preparing to strike if they need to as we speak. I'll leave it there for this week. You just listened to the second episode of The Upsurge. And we've gotten a decent reception so far, so please, please keep sharing it if you like the episode. Give us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter at UpsurgePod and on Facebook, The Upsurge. The podcast was edited by Sabrina Kessler. It was produced by Ruby Walsh and myself. Music is by Casey Gallagher. The cover art was done by Devlin Claro Resitar. I'm Teddy Ostro. Thanks for listening and catch you next time.